the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrandt, and today I'm talking with Alice Leon from Brick and Mortar Ventures about the future of digital and technology that she's seeing currently in its infancy. But before I talk to Alice, I need to talk to you about our exclusive podcast sponsor, NBS. NBS Chorus is revolutionising construction specification with cloud-based collaboration. Now it integrates seamlessly with your building model, allowing you to increase productivity and reduce risk. So NBS Chorus allows you to specify your project in UniClass 2015, which is recommended by the Queensland Government BIM Data and Information Guidelines, as well as the Victorian Digital Asset Strategy Guidelines, and mandated by Transport for New South Wales. So to learn more about NBS, head to their website, www.thenbs.com.au. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, Alice. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you today. Now, firstly, Alice, for the listeners uh, that I have that are not aware of who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So, uh, hey, everyone. Thanks for joining in today. I'm Alice Leung, um, and my background is actually in construction operations and project management. So I used to work for DPR Construction, one of the large commercial general contractors based out here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Started my career out on the construction sites as a project engineer um, and really fell in love with the problem solving aspect of construction. Um, and early in my career, I was really fortunate that I got pulled into helping with the BIM stuff. <laughs> so being a you know young person joining construction for the first time uh, and really liked computers and all the cool tech, um, I got to really work really closely with the BIM team. Um, and that kind of led me to working closely with the innovation group in helping evaluate and implement new tech. Um, so I've worked on hospitals and data centers in the San Francisco Bay Area and in Singapore. Um, and throughout my career, worked really closely with a lot of the construction technology startups. And that's kind of really what led me to uh, my career now in venture capital, working at brick and mortar ventures, investing in early stage construction tech startups. Now, one thing you did miss off your small CV there, and that's the one thing I love about all the guests is that we have the the guests all bring an extensive amount of knowledge and experience from their careers. You're also a committee member of of Built uh, North America, which is part of the DBI uh, Institute. So uh, you you forgot that part, but you also contribute to putting those events together uh, as a volunteer as well. And and that's how we know each other through our uh, cross-pollination across the different conferences and the built conferences around the world. But most people, and I don't know, maybe maybe there's a lot of smart people out there that listen to this podcast that understands venture capitalism, um, something that, you know, you, you're out there going and trying to find funding can you explain to the listeners who Brick and Mortar Ventures is? So first of all, who it is, what it is as a company, uh, and then can you share the role that you play um, as an organisation within industry? 
Yeah, for sure. And I, I always forget to mention DBEI because I see it more as fun rather than work. <laughs> well, it, it's, 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 it's business mixed with pleasure, right? And the whole thing is, is if we enjoy, yeah. if we enjoy what we're doing, it, it doesn't seem like work. And that's, that's exactly what those events are all about. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but thanks for bringing that up. Um, so yeah, a, a little bit on brick and mortar ventures. Uh, so we are oftentimes coined the construction tech investor, um, just given a lot of our, our group's past investments have included plan grid building connected field wire and a whole bunch more. Um, but really what we do is we invest in the built world, um, and particularly the construction process within that built world. Um, so for us, how we define the construction process is, you know, that process starts with design, goes through pre-construction, construction, construction, handover commissioning and operations maintenance. We're investing in technologies that make the construction and maintenance of assets a lot more efficient. Um, so I know that there's probably architects listening that are like, oh, what design is part of construction. That's just kind of how we, uh, that's kind of just how we uh, define uh, where we invest. Um, so we invest across all the different market verticals. So we don't only invest in technologies for single family residential and commercial real estate, but we also invest in technologies for oil and gas mining, civil infrastructure. And we have this idea that a lot of the processes are pretty similar across um, all of these different types of construction. So we invest in early stage construction technology startups. Uh, I'm just going to make it easy by calling it construction technology startups. We invest in the seed and series A stages. Um, and I think the interesting thing about our fund is that uh, if you look at the makeup of the team members, uh, we all have a ton of operations experience and four out of the five of us have worked in industry before as architects, engineers on the construction side. Um, and our, all of the initial investors in our fund are actually from the construction value chain. So you can kind of think of us as a by construction for construction fund. And we work really closely with all of the entrepreneurs, whether or not, you know, they're investing now or investing in the future. And we want to be that support system for anyone who wants to start a company for the AECO space. So yeah, we're very collaborative. We also work with a lot of large companies in industry that are interested in learning about or collaborating with some of these early stage startups. So we really want to be that glue between, you know, the technology side, the investing side, as well as the uh, practitioner side. One thing you, you touched on is that you're focusing on the construction side operations. It's because there's that much opportunity in, in each of those compartments, I guess, uh, maybe they just need to. Maybe there needs to be a sister company or someone else to come in. And if, if the architects are really interested, they can go and jump on that side of the fence and and start up another venture capital company. But this is a really interesting kind of a tipping point in terms of in terms of what was the decision behind or one of the main reasons why you decided to leave, you know, on-site construction project management type role to join a um, venture capital firm. So what what was what what drove that decision to make that massive step? Yeah, so I've I've been in the industry for a while now. Probably probably not that experienced, but just during my time in construction, um, I because I was out on the construction sites, I saw a lot of the inefficiencies. And I've always been the type of person that 
I think I'm just impatient. Like I, I don't know if I'm lazy. I think I'm impatient. And you know, when things don't go quickly, I just get really frustrated. I'm like, Oh, there's gotta be a better way, or there's gotta be some type of technology that we can use. And I think, you know, a lot of people, probably you and a lot of people listening to this podcast feel the same way. A lot of the folks at DBI are definitely, you know, and those who attend the built, uh, the built events is yeah just frustrated with how slow, you know, people have been adopting new technology, um, frustrated with some of the technology that we're kind of forced into using. Um, and, you know, construction or AEC space is, uh, you know, traditionally very service-based. Um, a lot of the technology companies that we've seen probably until just the last five years or so have been bootstrapped and they've just been people frustrated with issues, building technologies and, you know, selling to industry because they were just, you know, so frustrated with that one thing um, that they built a business out of it. And I think just given how construction was changing and the ability to bring tablets and smartphones out onto the construction site that actually made technology a little bit more scalable in some sense uh, to not just, you know, folks working on the computers and, you know, it wasn't just BIM tools being created for the industry. Um, so I kind of saw that during my time in construction that there were a lot of people just building new apps for the field um, or for, you know, the, the construction teams. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of saw that growth. And it also got to a point in my career where I was, you know, at a point where I'm like, oh man, things are changing so slowly. I've been on so many projects and, you know, every project is so different that, you know, the last project that I've, that I was working on was less innovative than the first project that I ever worked on. And, you know, that kind of just blew my mind how slow construction was changing. And that was when I decided, um, that I wanted to do something that had a bigger impact on industry. And I got this opportunity to join brick and mortar ventures, um, where now I get to work with a lot of industry professionals and I get to work with a lot of different technology companies in the hopes to kind of bridge a lot of those connections and invest in the companies that can really change the way that we build. No, it, it, it aligns with a lot of the reasons why we uh, choose to move on through frustration uh, and and procrastination with the people that we have to deal with. It's uh, time to move on. I can't cope with this anymore. Now, I have an idea. You know, let's 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 talk through a scenario. I have an idea, and I'm sitting here in my uh, my office right now. And and the problem is, is that I may have an idea, but it's very difficult to get an idea off the ground because you know you might not know the right people. You may not have the skill sets, but you have this this vision about how you're going to change the world. But how important do you find uh, venture capital in terms of its role? And you know, we'll look at it from a, from the perspective um, for construction and operation for today, rather than every facet. But how is important? How important is your role as a venture capital uh, firm in helping people with great ideas, people uh, that are looking to? Uh, develop software people are looking to develop uh, technology how is it why is it so important that you you exist as a role I guess why is it that you exist and 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 how is it so hard for people to just take an idea and make it real without people like yourself I would like to think that we're very important <laughs> no well but yeah <laughs> so I, I would like to think we're very important and integral to the you know 
I guess, the innovation and the digitization of construction. Um, but I think, frankly, you know, when I break it down um, and we have a lot of these discussions within my own team is to understand, you know, what is a company that makes sense for venture capital? So I think that's also something that's a little misconstrued to a lot of the, you know, just people around the world. They kind of think, oh, you can go to Silicon Valley, you could raise a ton of money and just like, fail as many times as you want, or you could do all this stuff. And I think, you know, from the outside perspective, it's kind of, it's very different from what it really is. Right. And, you know, when we look at AEC specifically, um, there are a lot of companies that actually don't make sense to raise venture capital. So the profile of a type of company uh, that should raise venture capital is one that is really, really risky. So a lot of the times it's so risky that banks won't lend you money. And that's why you're trading away part of your company for that capital. So you're selling equity of your company for capital. Um, so yeah, a lot of the times it's a really, really risky business. Um, it's probably something that has never been done before. And because of that, you know, people don't know if it's going to work or not. Like, I think the stat is nine out of 10 venture backed startups will end up failing. Um, so it's, it's not an easy path. Um, it is a path, but it is for very specific types of companies. And I think for us specifically, um, some of the examples of companies that we would be that, that, you know, have taken venture dollars that I think have made a big change on industry are the robotics companies or some of the ones that are developing new methods of construction that would otherwise be way too risky for, you know, someone like you, a sole proprietor to basically take on the risk to develop something um, that's super complex. Right. I think for a lot of the software, um, the early stages can be kind of bootstrapped or you can kind of do some type of development to get to a certain traction. And once you've, you know, decided that, okay, like we're actually going to turn this into a way bigger bet. Um, then that might be when that company turns into more of a venture backable business. Um, so yeah, when we look at companies, it's always like, you know, we're in the job to underwrite risk and it's very risky bets. Um, so we've invested in a whole bunch of different types of business models, some hardware, some robotics, some peer software. Um, some are more marketplace plays. Uh, as an example, we invested in Curbio. That's a pre-sale home renovation marketplace, but they do, you know, they have contractors underneath, you know, that they've hired within the company. Um, but the unique business model that they're going after, uh, you know, kind of made them a venture backable business. Now, another example of that, which might be kind of a, what could I say, reality TV-esque kind of approach for people would be Dragon's Den in terms of crazy people walking with their inventions and trying to get capital from, um, you know, very rich people. I don't know if they have Dragon's Den in, in North America, but they have a similar project, uh, similar program over there. I think it's Shark Tank. Shark Tank, the, yeah. Well, that's another one, yeah. Shark Tank. Why have I like Dragon's Den more? <laughs> <laughs> but for the listeners out there that have ideas, that's the kind of concept and you see how many of those ideas typically get shot down even though they have been filtered for the show. <laughs> it just demonstrates yeah. that how how hard it is to pick the, the, the winner, I guess you could say, or the ones that, that people can relate to or see a benefit in uh, in the long term and actually a, a, a marketable or or a business that's actually worth backing. Now we've covered off I guess on the kind of higher level stuff 
uh, in our introduction, I guess you could say. But what I wanted to touch on now is a couple and go into a bit more detail about some of the actual um, technologies or hardware, I guess you guys have uh, have, uh, assisted and backed. Now, the first one I wanted to talk to you about, you, you talked a lot about robotics and robotics have obviously a number of different um, ways in which it can benefit construction uh, through speed, accuracy, safety, etc. Do you want to talk to the listeners a little bit about Canvas and what Canvas is uh, and and the approach, you know, how that's going? Yeah. Um, so Canvas is one of our portfolio companies that's a drywall finishing robot. Um, so they actually came out of a robotics lab. Um, and when we talked to them, they were, you know, just trying to figure out what is that big market that they can go after. And, you know, from multiple conversations, uh, canvas decided that, Hey, drywall is actually a huge market and it's also very inefficient. Uh, and it's a lot of the times on the critical path. Um, so I think that was probably one of the you know, one of the reasons why we invested in Canvas is they've developed a technology that can decrease the drywall finishing time from seven days down to like two to three days, depending on, you know, how fast you can get um, the mud. It's called mud here in the U.S. I don't know if it's called the same in Australia, but how fast you can get the mud to dry. Um, so that is an overall like huge schedule savings. Uh, and it, and it's a fundamental change in the way that we're finishing drywall. Um, and through their process, you can actually achieve greater than a level five finish, uh, which I know a lot of architects will probably like, cause I've walked down hallways where it's a uh, level five, but you can still kind of see the seams in between the sheetrock. Um, so yeah, canvas, you know, I, they're starting with one very particular use case. There's definitely an opportunity for canvas to do other things such as, you know, painting walls or finishing concrete. Um, but the initial use case of drywall finishing was already a large enough market. And today their business model has been, um, being the drywall finishing subcontractor. So they've worked as a sub out on the construction sites to get that feedback loop into continuously uh, making their robots better. Um, but in the future, what they want to do is start leasing out some of their uh, machines to you know different contractors and potentially even start selling them. So that's a little further down the roadmap. Um, but yeah, they're definitely changing, you know, from a scheduling perspective, they're helping a lot of the contractors save time and kind of even get off of the critical path if if they end up being on it. No, I've it's it's as an architect, I hate the quality of uh, it's, and you don't normally see the plastering quality or lack of quality until after it's been painted. As we all know, it's it's the painting and the finished light fixtures that that then shine onto the uh, poor plastered joints, and you just go to yourself, oh please. And then there's you know I don't know if it's the same in over in the US, but we walk around as architects with little. Uh, colored dots to mark defects and and uh, see walls with dots all over them and uh, yeah it, it if that can change that and make it make the life of a you know I could imagine painters saying you know what I want to work with a robot plaster instead of a normal plaster uh, it might be an interesting change now one of the things that we are facing here in Australia is is uh, a challenge with uh, uh, trades not going not as many people actually 
learning to become tradespeople anymore and, and not as many people going through. So we're actually facing shortages of tradespeople. So normally the, the first question is is that people go, the robots are going to steal my job. How's it being embraced so far? Is it, is it because it's saving time, uh, you know, is there a labour shortage as well over in the US that, that you know, plastering is becoming a, a more of a, you know, a, a bespoke trade? Yeah, there's a there's a big labor shortage here in the U.S. as well, um, yeah. and it's actually all skilled tradespeople. Um, so very similar to Australia and Canvas. Uh, they actually did the approach where they reached out to the unions. Um, so I know you know with labor, a lot of people ask about unions yep. and all that. First thing, um, yeah, exactly. So Canvas actually you know, proactively reached out to the unions and the unions were actually like, we were surprised at how happy they were to see a new type of machine. So I think they compared it to another type of uh, tool that was invented and brought in. I can't remember exactly which one, but for drywall finishing. So the union members just see canvas as another machine that they're going to learn how to operate because you still need someone to operate it. Um, So canvas is actually augmenting a lot of the field crews rather than doing a full replacement. And I think frankly, the construction site is so complex because there's so many things moving around and there's stuff everywhere. The environment is so complex that I don't think we're going to see full autonomous robotics for a while. Um, And we may never want to do that because, you know, we still want the folks out on site, you know, checking the quality, making sure that everything's going okay. Like we're still going to have tradespeople out on site. So um, yeah, I really like the approach of, you know, going direct to the unions first. And I think we're seeing the same trend um, even for rebar. So there have been a couple of rebar tying uh, robots here in the U S that the unions are just, you know, they're happy because that just means a lot of their workforce can do more work actually with the new machines. And it's reducing uh, injury, isn't it? Because of RSI and all those sorts of loads that the tradespeople are placing on their bodies to, you know, contort themselves to essentially do specific tasks. Now I'm moving on to a contentious one. And, and, and I call it contentious because I had an interesting debate on Facebook, I think a little while ago about this. And it was on a tiny house page and and someone was getting really excited about 3D printed houses out of concrete. And I've just gone, do you understand how much energy is in that building and how much energy is required to build that thing? 3D printing, you know, it's a it's it's a catchphrase that's been used for a couple of years now. Everyone's trying to drive this whole concrete printing thing, which I think people don't realise that cement is actually a finite uh, uh commodity in this world as well and we're just mining this stuff and we're going to run out of it but you've got a different approach with this one and and this is one that I actually do like the concept of because it's actually not about printing a building uh it's about using other other kind of methods of actually using the technology for something that's possibly more useful um do you want to talk to the listeners about branch technology and and how that is slightly well it is but it isn't (laughs) it's it's not about printing buildings yeah and and i 100 percent agree with you on why this is a bit contentious um because we have spoken with and looked at a lot of concrete 3d printing companies and you know what it came down to is um at least for me how i think of it is you know it doesn't really make sense to ship you know cement and other types of materials to 
sites um, and gantries. I don't know if it makes sense to ship gantries all over the place. And, you know, we all know concrete is so unique depending on what region you're operating in because it changes depending on humidity and, you know, water supply and all that type of stuff. So we kind of stayed away from concrete 3D printing from all for all of those reasons. And now we see a lot of um, information about how bad car, uh, how bad concrete is for the environment. Um, so we're really thankful that you know Branch doesn't touch concrete at all. Um, and you know we invested in Branch because they are taking advantage of 3D printing for exterior skin facades. And like if you think about you know, a lot of the really high end, actually, you don't even need to be a high end client, but if you think about all of the owners and architects out there that want to build a really unique looking building, they pick a really nice and nice and fancy facade, but a lot of the times it's super expensive to have some unique shape or, you know, even if you want a really intricate art or whatever, um, the labor to create those really intricate facades is probably cost prohibitive for anyone to do something super unique and special. Um, so branch technology is taking advantage of 3D printing so that architects and owners can basically de design whatever type of facade system they want. And branch can 3D print that. Um, and they 3D print it inside their factory um, so that it's all in a controlled environment. They can make sure that the quality of these products are, you know, top notch meets all the requirements and then they ship it out on site um, broken down into prefabricated pieces. So they're kind of mixing 3D printing with prefabrication methods um, to offer this 3D printed, you know, exterior facade panel that allows for people to kind of dream of whatever kind of exterior they want and, and branch can do it. Uh, one of my favorite projects that they worked on, I think was a science center or a science museum and the exterior skin was i think the surface of the moon was what they decided and i wow. was like this is so cool so I, ca I can't wait to see all of the uh upcoming buildings and what things people can dream of but that's the positive isn't it in terms of facadism and it's something that i've got a nice book on iconic buildings and how buildings make a difference you know if a building's yes. design is an iconic building it can then draw draw tourism and the like and the importance of that but the problem is is that all these projects are governed by capital expenditure and they don't have an infinite budget to deliver these projects but then to have the access to this technology but essentially well what is manufacturing each panel which is kind of a similar thing to what needs to be done anyway if you're just using other panelized systems. It'd be interesting to know the cost differential, but we won't go into that today because I'm assuming it's a, it's not a, a something you can just go, oh, yeah, well, it's it's definitely this price because each panel being custom has different construction times, which takes longer to do. But I like that approach that it's more about design for manufacture and assembly as, as a kit of parts rather than, you know, let's just shove a big concrete nozzle here and just pour away. It doesn't, <laughs> it's not, it's not my fan um, with all those sorts of things. So we'll move on to, to a third in investment today that, that um, brick and mortar ventures has made out of the myriad of investments that you've made. There's, there's obviously too many to discuss in one sitting, but I'm hoping that what this conversation does is it opens up people's eyes to the fact that technology can make a difference and, you know, and then people start to believe in actually using technology to make their lives easier. Or if they have a great idea that they start reaching out to you. 
But here in Australia we have, you know, and it's probably similar with major major storm events and the like that you have in the US. Now we have major cyclones, major floods that go through. And I, I remember reading a news article the other day talking about someone had had a, uh, you know, a, a claim from a cyclone here, which is a hurricane in North America, two years ago, and the house still isn't fixed. That would be due to a myriad of reasons. It could be because the insurance company doesn't have time to get out there, which they probably have gotten out there, but supply of, of, of uh, trades probably would be the real issue. But every step in the process for uh, property assessments takes a long period of time. It's it's kind of like get get through this gate, get through that gate, get through the next. Now, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Hoster AI, remote property assessments. And, and the work that, that uh, they're doing in terms of trying to assist on that side. So we've kind of covered off on how things can work with construction, how we can save things in construction. Now let's talk about the more front-end stuff about before they even get on site uh, with this with this um, product and, and solution. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so Hosta is actually one of more, our more recent investments, um, but we've known the team for... A while now. Um, one of the founders was a architect that ended up getting her PhD in uh, computer vision, artificial intelligence, and the other co-founder uh, has a really strong business background, business and operations background. They came together, started Hosta, um, and they're the first use case that they're going after is actually working with insurance companies to do uh, appraisals and assessments of existing conditions, if you want to call it that. Um, so whether it's, you know, a large insurance company that's insuring a warehouse, uh, Hosta can help make sure that, you know, the sprinkler heads are adequately spaced apart, or there's, you know, the, t- the right type of railing at certain height or whatnot. Um, they're also working with insurance companies to understand, uh, damage. So as you mentioned, so they can, um, know what is the approximate square footage of the damage that needs uh, sheetrock replacement or something like that. Um, so the technology that Hossa has is um, a technology where you can basically turn a 2D photo into a BIM and BOM, so uh, building information model and bill of materials. Um, and they threw, do that through kind of creating a 3D spatial grid from a 2D photo from understanding, you know, angles and all that. Um, and they're automatically creating floor plans and stuff like that from the photos that you take. Um, so their whole goal was, you know, we want to use the, um, the device that most people have, which is a smartphone, which is why they built their technology around, you know, just cameras on a smartphone so they can take that, you know, 2D photo and and turn it into whatever you need. Um, So what that means for the, I guess, greater AEC market is they're going to be this reality capture tool that can um, make measurements, uh, create floor plans, create 3D models. Um, They can understand locations and they can understand materials as well. Um, so they've kind of built in this overall architecture of, you know, all their objects in, in a way that an architect would think about it. Um, so which is why they're able to create Revit files with, you know, windows, knowing that windows need to be within a door um, and they can kind of tag the specific types of materials to uh, whatever they see in the photo. I don't even want to know how hard that was to do. <laughs> That's... 
it was really hard because we've we've talked to so many reality capture companies and you know point cloud data 360 photo data um people trying to do stuff with 2d photos some with you know color point clouds with you know like and then they're all semi-automated right um hosta is the first one that we've seen is truly automated though their accuracy is probably 95 percent today um it's not you know valid for you know, as building just yet. Um, but as they continue to train their algorithms, we're confident that they can get pretty accurate. That's scary, isn't it? So then yeah. a, a site foreman at the end of a pro or through it progressively through the project. And this is something that's really interesting. So obviously that's an insurance angle, but I, I know that site foremen take pro- progress shots every day on site when they're during construction. Imagine a situation whereby just by, and obviously we're talking about the future here, but by that site foreman's photo diary essentially that he has over a six, 12-month construction period where he's taking photos of various things that are going on, it it could potentially paint a picture of an as-built without any other verification required. That's on the roadmap. So that is definitely going to be the future and that's one of the reasons why we are so excited and why we invested is, you know, we have, I have firsthand experience of how painful <laughs> as building is. And it's, you know, a lot of paper going out on site, pulling tape and, you know, trying to bring it back into the model. If you're using a model or even marking up a 2d plan, that's still pretty annoying. Um, and, you know, Hosta is tackling this pain point that really no one wants to do. Like, I'm sure no site foreman wants to go out and actually mark up, oh, like this piece of ductwork was installed today. Um, so, yeah, we think with Hosta, it could just be, you know, a ton of photos, uh, potentially even videos, like video walkthroughs. Um, they can track progress. They can update the as-built. Of course, this is in the future, but I, I don't think it's that far in the distant future. No, well, it. Where do I sign up to invest? <laughs> the problem is, is that the, I I know how like the 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 tool in its current concept obviously brings a lot of value to the insurance market, but if it does get to that accuracy to a point where it's to a high enough level to then capture from photos throughout the life of the construction and being able to disseminate what's real and what's changed in that, that'd be Pretty spectacular. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of in a, in a world of excitement at the end of our conversation today because of that. I'm glad I'm glad I left that one to the end because I think that to me, apart from the myriad of other issues that we have, the biggest challenge that we have when it comes to handover is everyone saying, "Well, I need to go and." Uh, use Kelly Cohn's laser scanners and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to capture this information when the level of accuracy isn't necessarily as high as what it should be. At the end of the day, you want to have a reasonably strong accuracy across the the built asset to then verify it against your design model to go, well, it's generally right. And that's that's really the accuracy most people need uh, unless they're going to do really detailed uh, outcomes. But to me, that's blown my mind for the end of the conversation. So I'm hoping that everyone else has been excited by those technologies that 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 um, brick and mortar venture are backing. And there's probably a few other companies that are out there that are similar to you. Um, now, now we've talked about 
the current and and you did touch on the future <laughs> with Hoster and, and I'm very excited now. But throughout our career, you know, we have seen a, an, a substantial change in the way in which technology is implemented. Now, yes, as you've said, construction sites are, are very uh, slow to adapt and we also have people in construction sites and, and designers that are all just going, oh, I'm happy doing it this way. I've always done it this way. Uh, but technology has moved on at a rate of knots and if we look at that lovely scale of how technology has changed, it's it's, it's an exponential curve. So as someone that's on the forefront in terms of seeing, you know, every day having someone knock on your door essentially <laughs> saying, you know, your inbox, I could be scared to see how full it would get every day from people putting options and saying, look, this is my new technology. If you consider, come on, please back me. With all of that knowledge that you have of what you've investigated to date and knowing what kind of could be around the corner, where do you see um, the state of industry in the next, say, five or ten years' time and potential technologies? Well, for sure, the uh, famous McKinsey graph <laughs> of productivity in construction being stagnant. <laughs> I mean, I would hope that that's no longer the case, right? Especially with um, a lot of the new tools and robotics coming into the space. I mean, I think I'm I'm most excited about the new hardware and the physical things that can you know, make our workers a lot more safe as well as more productive. Um, and of course, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of the digital tools that are making collaboration a lot easier. Um, so I do have a hunch that, you know, especially with the pandemic and people working remotely, um, I think the industry is going to adopt, you know, at least a little more flexibility with, you know, global workforce and stuff like that. Um, I, I would like uh, for us to do less on the model authoring and more on the design, um, because I know there's a lot of admin stuff that goes into the documentation. So, you know, I think I think we are going to see that with some of the automation and a lot of the admin tasks that architects and engineers do. Um, so the goal is, you know, in the next five to 10 years, we have more machines on site um, more collaboration. Uh, there's definitely going to be less workers out on site. Uh, for sure. There's, there's already a ton of, you know, increased prefab DFMA and all that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think construction should be less risky. Um, that's, I think that's, that's the end goal is that it's more safe, less risky. Um, everything else is, is a plus, but yeah, I'm excited to see less workers out on site because not because, you know, I don't want them there. It's because we have a labor shortage and there aren't enough people coming into the construction industry, whether it is the skills trades, skilled trades or architecture, engineering and construction. I think, you know, even on the uh, office side of things, there's still not enough people joining the industry. So it's an overall shortage all around. And, you know, owners are only going to get pickier and we're only going to build more. Uh, so we do need to automate a lot of those admin processes. And hopefully the fees don't continue to go down, um, but we are more efficient in the way that we uh, manage these jobs. Yeah, it's it's a huge challenge and it's only going to get harder 
because everyone wants more and more and we've got to do more with less and all of those other issues that we have to deal with. But, uh, Alice, thank you very much for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, from, you know, San Francisco, Silicon Valley land. <laughs> but um, I have one final question for you. It's the one question I ask every one of my guests and I'm looking forward to seeing the, the, the technology future side in you. And uh, what does BIM mean to you? Yeah, so BIM to me is more about the information and it's the linking of information and being able to get the right information at the right time when you need it. Um, so that was my, you know, when I first joined the construction industry, I fell in love with building things virtually and then building it in real life to find all the problems. Um, but as I, you know, progressed in my career, I realized that not everyone saw the world that way. Um, so if we were to dumb it down and make it kind of the lowest common denominator, like the information and the data is what we need, whether or not it's 3d 45d whatever it is as long as you can link all of that information in a place that people can access and understand um that would be a winning world for me so probably a different definition now that i'm you know more more progressed in my career but yeah the information is is the key part of them for me i think that all of us learn each week something new and it changes our view on what the meaning is. So, you know, we could have a conversation another two years' time and your view might have changed again because we realise that we don't know enough the more we know. So I think it's a it's a pertinent kind of angle that you take with the information side of it and it's the whole reason behind why technology is in place to enable better communication and information transfer. So that's really what it's all about but thanks once again for your time today alice now for more information on alice and brick and mortar ventures please head over to the podcast section of the skewed website for further reading i look forward to sharing our next podcast with you in a fortnight's time until then good luck with your digital transition Digital transition.